Welcome to the Live Your Edge podcast. This is Gilbert Joy, your host. Join me as I interview world-class performers, seven- and eight-figure entrepreneurs, digital nomads, and those living on their edge. Basically, living on your edge means you're constantly pushing your comfort zone, always striving for new heights. And that's exactly what we do at the Live Your Edge podcast. What's up, everyone? This week, we'll be speaking with Ed Vinson, CEO of Festival Pass. And we'll be talking a bit about marketplaces. And I'm sure you've probably heard of marketplaces such as uh, Uber, Airbnb, where people have a need and then there's a supply of individuals, whether they're drivers, whether they're Airbnb hosts that will provide the service, uh, product, etc. And Fast Festival Pass has been around for a couple years and they've expanded to dozens of cities around the US. Ed himself is an entrepreneur with over 20 years of business experience in technology and management experience as well, as well as six years in banking and valuation. He started an e-commerce company back in 1999 during the dot-com boom and sold it to a competitor in 2001. And he's also a repeat founder in multiple businesses, meaning that Ed is very experienced with what it takes to build a company. Currently, he's also the founder of Predict Connected Intelligence and Audience Ventures. I'm excited for this interview because there's so much that there is to learn, especially about marketplaces. So join me in welcoming Ed Vincent. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Live Your Edge podcast. This week, we have Ed Vincent, who is the co-founder of Festival Pass with us today. Welcome to the show, Ed. Hey, how you doing, Gilbert? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. And today, we're going to be talking a bit about your journey with uh, starting Festival of Pass and getting it into the hands of millions of festival goers. So walk us through your journey. How do you get started? Sure. So I, I think at, at the end of the day, context is always helpful to understand how anybody gets to any certain path. And if, 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 I, if I can share some of that, it might be helpful to understand it. So um, I've been an entrepreneur for over 20 years living in New York City. Um, when I first came out of uh, school, I ended up in the finance world, um, even though prior to that, I, I was an entrepreneur in college, actually, uh, silly as it might sound, um, I'm old enough to to be in, in the days where I, I was the only kid with a fax machine in my dorm room at school, uh, and I was uh, acting as a real estate appraiser, valuing homes for mortgage companies and banks. My own business out of the dorm room, which was fun. <laughs> wow. But along those lines, I ended up moving to New York and, and, and became an nice. investment banker. But I left that in 1999 to start uh, my, first, uh, my first entrepreneurial, real entrepreneurial venture, which was an e-commerce company called City Stuff. Um, and that was, a, that was a very fun company. We, uh, it was a lifelong friend of mine and I named Pat Tully. We, uh, we created this business where uh, anything that made cities famous, we would, uh, we would box up and ship to you. So uh, in New York City, uh, as an example, I think, Gilbert, you're from New York, so you'd understand. Um, we would have uh, New York City pizza flash frozen and shipped overnight, and H&H uh, &H bagels shipped overnight, uh, Junior's Cheesecake from Brooklyn 
packaged and shipped overnight. Uh, and we did that in six or seven cities throughout the country. I think I heard of this company before. <laughs> it's, it's possible. It's, uh, we, we ended up selling the company in 2001 to a company out of Stanford called e-commerce solutions. And I think since then, a lot of companies have come out to do, it was even the beginning of the before the of the month club. So uh, later, a lot of people came out and did, you know, pizza, of the month club, bagel, of the month club. Um, but we, we were, if you look at the time frame of it, this was before Google, this was before Facebook. So you can imagine all of these really interesting companies that had no e-commerce capabilities. Got it. So, uh, so sorry for that diversion, but just leading, going forward, um, and this all brings the context eventually of uh, where we are with Festival Pass. But um, in the 2000s, I had a, uh, an agency in New York, which was an experiential agency. Um, so we did a lot where, where we would create event marketing for many, many different companies. Uh, some were alcohol companies like Absolute and others were just large brands um, where we would help them um, uh, be out in the market in an experiential way. We had a PR division and a few others. Uh, but during that time, which, which got me excited about the live event space, is not only will we create those events, but we helped, uh, we helped launch uh, film festivals um, like Veil vale Film Festival, and we worked uh, with Sonoma Valley Film Festival. And we even had the opportunity to create our own festival in the Dominican Republic, which we built, operated, and owned. And that was a lot of fun, but it really brought to my attention um, this whole live event kind of space that was a lot of fun. Does that make sense? Yeah. So where did it go from there? Started Festival Pass? Yeah. yeah. So, so I'll continue. So, so then in uh, 2012, I, I created a, a MarTech company that I sold in 2014. Uh, and then for the last uh, few years, uh, I've had a data consultancy with some partners uh, where we've, um, we help a lot of entertainment brands understand their, their consumer data. Companies like A&E Networks and AMC Networks and um, uh, Screen Vision, which uh, they're the people that sell ads in front of movie theaters. And along those lines, I was uh, a consultant for MoviePass, which many of your viewers probably heard of. Um, and in that process, I learned a lot about the world of subscription-based uh, marketing and what makes gross margins important. Um, that all kind of evolved into uh, what Festival Pass is today, which is a subscription marketplace in the live event space. Um, our, our model tends to, not tends to be, our model is a credit-based system that is uh, more synonymous with the way ClassPass operates their business than it is with the way MoviePass or anybody else operated theirs. So tell us a bit more about that. You said it's a subscription-based um, model and then it, it operates similar to ClassPass. Correct. So um, users come to FestivalPass and they pay a monthly fee, whether that is a uh, a $9, $29, $49, $79 a month fee, they choose the level they want to be at. And for that, they get a number of credits. Uh, and then they're able to use those credits to attend um, hundreds and eventually thousands of different events. So each event will has its own uh, pricing. So um, one event might be six credits for uh, a small beer festival in Brooklyn or if they wanted to go to a larger festival like South Beach Food and Wine, it might be 60 credits or 80 credits, all depending upon what event they're going to. So how, how did you uh, build this company from, this, from scratch? I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of moving parts. You need to get the, the festival, the events to agree, and then you, not, you have to go and reach out to um, potential your audience so that you can uh, get signups and, uh, and whatnot. So how, how does that work? 
Sure. So, so you, you hit the nail on the head, just like any marketplace, whether it's Uber, Lyft, or Airbnb, there's two sides to a marketplace. There's the inventory. Um, you know, in the car sharing world, it's the actual drivers, which is the inventory. In Airbnb, it's the, it's the properties. Uh, and then you have the consumers, the ones that are the buyers. Um, so in our world, um, you are correct. It's really about building both sides of that marketplace. So on the event side, um, we've begun to um, build relationships with a lot of the rights holders. Some of those are direct to the rights holders themselves. Others are through uh, media companies that support them. Um, think of the you know iHeart Radios of the world and Town Square Medias of the world, who were, were in discussions with both uh, in terms of bringing a certain set of events on the platform. Um, we also uh, uh, are working with other ticketing firms in order to get their inventory on our platform so that um, as we roll out city by city, we have enough events in those cities that are exciting and enticing for the consumer to be a part of. And then on the, the flip side, which is getting users and exposure, um, one is um, we have media partnerships on a local level with companies that, um, like the radio stations, um, have uh, direct exposure on a local level. Um, so we have deep relationships uh, and partnerships that we're rolling out now and access to tens of millions of direct email addresses, as well as um, you know, uh, access to local media uh, up to scales up to 100 million unique visitors a month. Um, so it's a process. So it's a process of, uh, of building the marketplace like a seesaw. Yeah. So speaking of you know, going a little bit deeper into marketplaces, I mean, it's 20, the year is 2020. And what do, you, what do you think about companies starting marketplaces today? Like what are some of the, the biggest challenges that a company starting maybe five, 10 years ago wouldn't have? Sure. I, I would label it as marketplaces have kind of a defined set of attributes that, in my opinion, make them successful. Um, and, uh, you know, without going too much into it, you let me know how much detail is important or not sure. important to you. Um, but the way I look at it is, uh, every successful marketplace must have, um, four attributes and those four attributes, um, must be, uh, interesting and, and, and I'll explain. So if you, if you look at, um, the difference between root density and global density, so many marketplaces. Um, I'm sorry. What's root, root? What's root density? Sure. So root density is being able to sustain a marketplace at a local level. So as an example, in a car sharing network like an Uber or Lyft, um, take New York City as an example. Um, you need enough drivers in the city, and as well as enough passengers in one city, in order to make that market work. So that 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 market can work um, in its in silo in only one city. Um, that's really what they call a root density effect, which enables um, a marketplace to be within a, within a localized environment. Um, then you have a global density effect, and a great example of that is an Airbnb, where um, if you have properties in New York City uh, listed on Airbnb, it's not really that likely that people that live and breathe in New York City are the ones that, uh, you know, buying into those properties. Um, so their, their desire is on a global level so that the more properties that are listed within the Airbnb environment globally in various cities increases the overall value of the marketplace for individuals from all cities. Does that make sense? Yeah. So saying that for us, for example, companies like Airbnb and Uber, Uber would be a lot easier to sustain because it's folk, it can stay with a root density and it would still be able to sustain its operations, whereas Airbnb would need to cover a lot more cities 
because travelers do not just, uh, they would not get an Airbnb in their own city um, and they, they're required to go to other cities to, um, to do so. Yeah, so, so a great way to look at it is a, a successful marketplace requires at least one of those two attributes. The marketplaces that have both um, have more opportunity. So for example, the Ubers and Lyfts of the world have both a root density and a global density effect is I might sustain myself in New York, but now when I fly to LA and I can still use Uber, that is an additive value to the global effect. Okay. For marketplaces nowadays, I mean, there's marketplaces for virtually anything these days, but are there marketplaces that you feel might be needed in the future, but aren't currently being served or it's difficult to serve them right now because of maybe some um, possible limitations? Sure. Well, great question. Do you think it, uh, if, if you don't mind, I can go through the other three attributes and then kind of answer the question based upon. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So that was one. The, the second attribute is the type of inventory. So uh, it's easy to use these brand name marketplaces because it, it, it's easy for people to understand. So when you think about uh, inventory, it's either homogeneous inventory or it's heterogeneous inventory. So in the homogeneous side, that's that's the ride sharing. While of course you can choose a SUV over a Toyota Camry, um, the most of the inventory is as long as I get a ride in a clean car, I don't care who the driver is and I don't care what the car is, as long as it fits within a certain environment, that's homogeneous inventory. Airbnb is on the other side, they're heterogeneous. What makes them so special is they have you know millions of properties that are all uniquely different. It's not like a traditional hotel where they're all the same. So when you live in those worlds, um, each marketplace has to act differently based upon the type of inventory they have. Um, a homogeneous inventory can scale more quickly, and that's kind of what you were saying about getting that inventory. They can scale more quickly, but because they're homogeneous, um, others can enter those markets, um, so therefore market share is super important. So that's why you've seen the Ubers and Lyfts of the world expand so fast, and why the other 10 or 20 ride-sharing programs have really not really uh, gotten off the ground as fast um, because it takes intense amount of capital and uh, to be able to scale with homogeneous inventory. On the flip side, Airbnb has heterogeneous inventory and because they got out to market fast or they were first, um, they were able to capture a lot of that inventory. And when they do that, it creates a pretty significant moat. So if somebody, for example, is a property owner and they're listing their property or Airbnb and it's working for them, it's unlikely they're going to go list it on seven other different marketplaces uh, and try and manage seven different paths. So that moat becomes pretty large as long as they're doing their job. So on the flip side, I guess Uber, like uh, the Uber equivalent would be a lot easier to break into the market, but harder to to differentiate and sustain whereas Airbnb would be uh harder to get started because of the the need to capture multiple um, regions and markets and but it would be a lot easier in the in the once they have that uh like you said a moat where it's someone that's doing well on the platform is less likely to go and check out a competitor correct so you, you even see it in in every car you get in in an uber you know, how many Ubers do you get in that also drives for Lyft and also drives for some other service? Um, whereas Airbnb, you'll find um, more of the property managers and owners, um, you know, tend to only use Airbnb, maybe one or two others, but but rarely. Mm. So where, where does uh, Festival Pass fit into this? 
Sure. So I do have two other attributes, but I'll, but I'll, I'll go to Festival Pass. So Festival Pass has both a root and global density effect. So that's why I'm really excited about it. We have the ability to get hundreds of events in one city. So even if somebody doesn't travel out to, you know, the big Coachella or Sundance or South Beach Food and Wine, they're able to go to hundreds of events in their own home city and get value. Um, then when they do decide once a year, five times a year to travel somewhere for a big event, they still can use Festival Pass there. So, so that, that's why I'm excited about that kind of uh, aspect of it. On the inventory side, Festival Pass is very much more akin to Airbnb. So um, as you can tell with live events, um, it's, it's all heterogeneous inventory. It's all unique. So every single event is unique. Um, so that gets it you know, a little harder and longer to acquire those events, but um, also enables us to have, a uh, as we get out first in market and we're the largest cross-platform and cross-genre hmm. um, uh, subscription, it will enable us to have more of a moat uh, from other competitors coming in. So the, the, the third one, do you want to know the third? Well, you mentioned the three of them already, right? Uh, well, just or is it two? two. I mentioned the root and global density and then the, the type of inventory. The, okay, uh, yeah. One of the third ones is um, is uh, the the price. So um, the concept of having high frequency, low price, or low frequency, high price. You, you need one of the two, and if you don't have one of the two, it's very difficult to build a marketplace. What I mean by that is, um, uh, like an Uber and Lyft, um, somebody might use it ten times, twenty times a month, even if it's seven dollars, twelve dollars, you know. Uh, $15 at a time. Airbnb, people might only use one, two, three times a year, but they're usually spending $200, $300 at a time. So as long as you have um, one of the two, if you have a low price and a low frequency, it's not a good thing. So what if you have um, both? For, for example, Uber, I would assume that Uber Black uh, has the frequency is a lot lower, but the price is higher versus Uber X, where people would commonly use that, where you have like multiple products or product sets so that you can target multiple um, market segments. Yep, I, I agree with that. Um, and I think over time for Festival Pass, we look at it as uh, having that, um, that effect uh, of being both frequency and, and size. And it really plays into our local and global effect. Whereas, um, you know, somebody that signs up for $20 a month or even $49 a month um, might end up going to you know, a, a beer, a beer festival in, in Williamsburg, but then that Wednesday night, they might go to a show at Brooklyn Bowl. And then that Friday, they might go to a whiskey tasting, uh, you know, at Bloomingdale's. Using that as an example, um, there's many, many times they can interact with the platform throughout the month in their local area. And then they might save up and, you know, once every three months, spend the equivalent of a couple hundred dollars to go to a big festival. Mm, got it. And then uh, the, the last one, just to, just to close it out and allow you to take the interview where you want to go, um, is uh, the ability to be sticky in the marketplace. Um, so what the, the, the marketplace must allow for the buyer and seller to actually want to transact in the marketplace and not off the marketplace. So again, Uber, Lyft, um, it's much easier to just open the app and use it. Even if you connect with a driver the first time and you really like that driver, by the next time you need a ride, that driver might not be nearby, they might be not working that day. So it's really hard to, to engage in that. Um, 
you find, I found some marketplaces that have not succeeded, especially in New York, and had to move to different models because they tried something that just doesn't work based upon this principle. So if you remember some of the cleaning service marketplaces, um, you know, the Handys of the world and a few others, uh, effectively they would help you find a cleaner um, before you know it, that same cleaner is coming every Wednesday for a specific price. And within two or three weeks, you're texting them and using Venmo to pay rather than using the, the marketplace. So it really, it really takes away the value of the marketplace if they can just directly transact with whoever, whoever you match them to. Yeah, I think this is a very valuable point because a lot of people start marketplaces and they don't have um, this stickiness factor. For example, I spoke with a person that was trying to create a marketplace for you know, real estate buyers, owners, and, and so forth. You know, one of the questions I had was like, so the thing is real estate transactions, uh, particularly for an individual buyer, doesn't happen on a daily basis, nor does it happen on a quarterly basis. It's something that is very rare and maybe sometimes is one-off. What is the incentive for them to come onto the marketplace and, and use the service if it's just a if it's just a one-time thing. It also goes into the sort of like the, the, like you mentioned before, the frequency of the transaction. If the transaction is not frequent enough, it seems like uh, people won't really go on the platform much. And if there's a lot of fees involved, then they, and it's a lot easier for them to, like you said, connect with the, with the service provider offline and just cut, maybe even cut out the, the middleman completely, then there's no need for that to exist. Correct? Correct. Yeah. You said it well. And, and, so that's why when I look at marketplaces and trying to answer your original question, is that if these four attributes kind of meet the smell test, um, then then you can get to the next level to say, hey, well, is this industry available for a marketplace and should it work? And that's why I love the live events industry is because it's a $200 billion industry. It's disaggregated. Uh, over 80% of the industry is uh, medium to long tail. So there are big players, the live nations of the world. Um, but collectively, those big players only only control about twenty percent of that global inventory. Um, therefore, there's opportunity. What What do you mean by medium to long tail for this particular case? Uh, sure, sure. So most of um, live events in the world um, are owned and managed by different groups. So you may have a, an event producer that does fifty events or even five events. Um, you may have um, a media group. Um, that has 300 events to support their media properties. Um, so globally, th th that's the medium and long tail, meaning that 80% of all events globally are actually managed by thousands upon thousands of different groups, which creates an opportunity for a marketplace because it's a centralized place for everybody to transact. Whereas, um, you know, when a, on some other marketplaces that have, have attempted to, to go out, if, if one major player is controlling 50% of the market, it becomes hard to create uh, that opportunity across the board. Yeah, because that one player has no real incentive to participate in this marketplace, right? Yep, they just do it themselves. I mean, you, you did see, even though there's still tons of room for a movie subscription service, you, you saw AMC come out with a subscription service soon after MoviePass um, because they control such a large amount of the, of the inventory. And MoviePass, um, are they still around? The, the company does exist. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how much I can share about it. I do, I do know about it. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, I think back to the original question was, uh, that I asked was, like, do you see, what, what marketplaces do you see now? Or do you see any problems that haven't 
been yet solved that might be able to be solved with a marketplace that isn't already out? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I, I obviously, I think the live events is one of the biggest opportunities, hence why I'm, I'm attacking it. Um, but uh, mm-hmm. it's a good question is when I, when I thought through it, it was, it was one of the ones I thought that was most ripe for disruption is the wrong word, but most ripe for, um, you know, moving forward into it. Uh, as well as it's a passion of mine, as well as the economics are good, as well as, you know, there's numerous other fundamentals that just make a lot of sense. Um, but to answer your question, um, think through that a little bit. I mean, there definitely are. I mean, there's plenty of marketplaces that still exist that I don't think as much about personally on the B2B side. Um, and there's obviously a lot of people attacking various segments. The delivery marketplace is, you know, the Postmates of the world. Um, you know, obviously the, the ride sharing has been, been attacked and reality has been attacked. So most of the marketplaces has to do with the convenience and things related to fitness, relationships, logistical things. Yeah, no, a great example is one of the reasons ClassPass has succeeded is one, their inherent credit model, which, you know, they, they, they had the same problems MoviePass did and others, other, other subscription companies had up until about two and a half, three years ago. And and ClassPass moved to a credit-based system, which gave them the foundation to actually have positive unit economics and grow. Um, so, you know, I, I love the model that they have, and that's exactly the underlying credit model that we have. Um, but in the health and fitness environment, it goes back to what I was saying before about the um, long tail is, you know, the significant amount, I think they have about 30,000 class groups on their platform. Um, it's, it's, a, it's one-off studios, it's people that own five or 10 studios. It's, uh, it's less about you know, Equinox and, and uh, you know, the, the big gym providers. It's more about the tens of thousands of disaggregated inventory that they're bringing together in a really unique way. So in, the, in essence, in the future, we'll see less, less of these so-called markets that are fragmented or disaggregated like you mentioned and a lot more efficient basis where you can have many different service providers in the particular industry serving even more number of customers and they can all exist in the same in the same space without no because it is such a big market it, they don't have to necessarily compete with each other directly correct yep i think that's a, it's a good way to say it and at the end of the day a lot of these um disaggregated providers would have to have a marketing budget anyway. So any kind of rev share they're doing with the marketplace itself, really at the end of the day, is just a performance-based marketing budget. So what has been the biggest learning for you when it comes to uh, building your company? Um, The biggest learning? um, Well, I guess maybe I could rephrase that question and make it easier for you. Um, what, what would be something that you know now that you didn't know when you started that has made one of the most significant impacts on your business and how it works? Sure. So um, two things. Uh, you know, one is I, I, this is the first time I've built multiple businesses throughout my 20 years. And this is the first time it truly started and still is a virtual company, meaning that um, all the folks that are participating in the company are all over the world. And it really you know, it's an exciting ability to connect with different cultural inspirations all through, you know, the tools of Slack and really easy ways to use things didn't exist 
five, 10 years ago the way they do today. Um, so it really, you can really drive performance in a company and, and get KPIs of work done simply with the tools that exist. And it just wasn't as easy in the, in the past. Um, so that's one. Um, and then I think the second is this, you know, I don't want to push it too hard because everybody else will jump in, but, but having a credit-based currency just, it doesn't solve for everything, but it just makes um, the model so much better. And, and it makes it better for so many reasons. Um, meaning that enabling the company to create reverse dynamic pricing. So I'm a data guy. So at the end of the day, um, the ability to take multiple data points from a consumer based upon their behavior, their interest, the lifetime value of them to the platform, um, you know, the weather of where the event is, and actually deciding what the credit pricing is based upon so many different data attributes um, can only happen at scale when you, um, when you have that many data points. Um, so mm. one festival in one location will never have enough information to truly understand kind of what that cross-platform cross pricing is. Um, and there's all these other small, tiny little benefits that come with prepaying a subscription and then managing your own currency. So I'll give a great example is, um, and, and there are issues to this example I'm gonna give, so, so don't dig in too far, take it on a high level, is if somebody's paying a monthly fee and they're getting credits and they redeem them to go to an event, and let's say the return policy uh, for that you know, redemption is pretty liberal and within a few days they decide they can't make the event and they want to uh, you know, unredeem their ticket. In, in the regular world, they'd have to sell that ticket in the secondary market. Um, they'll, they'll deal it's with- They'll lose some value. Yeah, they'll deal with transaction fees, the credit card processors. Well, not only did they take a fee initially, they're gonna take a fee again. Um, but when you live in this ability to manage your own currency, not too dissimilar to the world of blockchain is you're able to actually make an, a, an entry in the database, right? So, uh, you know, if you have a hundred tickets in inventory and one is redeemed and that person a day later decides they can't go, you just put it back into the inventory and recredit their, their, their credit base system with the right amount of credits and it doesn't cost anything. Yeah. So that, that, that removes the having to go through the traditional route you know, offloading your ticket, running the risk of losing money on it and potentially not being able to, to sell it. Correct. So just more operational benefits. And, and, you know, over time, there's, there's more, there's more to it. And it's not all perfect because not all return policies are exactly the same. But, uh, but overall, it's just one of those epiphanies that a credit-based system affords so many business model advantages over a traditional model that uh, it's exciting. Along that, along those lines, you can actually credit users for good behavior on the platform absolutely we already have in the we already have in place that any person that signs up as a free user they don't even have to be a paid user yet um they get a unique link and as long as they send that unique link to their friends and 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 uh, ask them to join or refer them to join they'll get credits when that person joins so it's a way for them to earn money it's a way um eventually we'll have a, a more a uh, robust reward system like you see on Uber, where based upon different actions and different attendance, they'll, they'll receive points, which then can be turned into credits, just like you can turn points into Uber cash on Uber. Does this draw a parallel to what's going on in the, the blockchain space right now, where people are being incentivized to perform certain actions in return for uh, micro micropayments? 
but of course the you know the currency they get is not necessarily credits um, like your credit based system, um, but yeah, like cryptocurrency. Correct. Yeah, it's it's world of blockchain, and if you're a, a, a very uh, serious crypto guy, you might take offense to the statement. But often the question is is you know is blockchain a solution in search of a problem or is it a problem in search of a solution? And and the reality is is there's a lot of tenements to what blockchain is, and effectively it's it's basically just currency management um, that can be applied to a business model without actually having to use blockchain. Um, so at some point, does blockchain serve as some future integration to Festival Pass uh, once we have a really established currency model that could enable it to do something else? Maybe, but um, blockchain is definitely not a requirement for us to get some of the benefits. Yeah, so how I see it uh, from looking at your business, it seems like blockchain isn't necessary to have the same benefits of your credit system. So yeah, like I like I, sometimes I tell people it feels like yes, you can you can put blockchain on something, but a lot of times you don't need that complexity to make it work and I think blockchain just adds a lot of complexity where it may not be needed. Correct. Yeah, I I highly agree with that statement. Yeah, I'm sure some of my friends that are in blockchain listening to this might get uh, get mad over that, but <laughs> It's okay. <laughs> okay, so let's let's take a little more high level view. Like, by which venture did you start to really accumulate that business acumen? Like, you know, for fine tuning your business model and the business and seeing it in a lot bigger picture. Because I know a lot of the listeners they might have they might be starting their first business, might be on the second, the third. More most businesses just fail. So how navigate that? Sure. So. I would say that it's a collection of multiple experiences that kind of led me to this. And, and I'm super excited about this for multiple reasons. I've always tried to choose businesses that also the content is I'm passionate about. Um, everybody, a lot of people go into different businesses like the entertainment business or tech or blockchain because it sounds sexy and interesting, um, but then realize that any business still has the same fundamental hard work uh, to execute it. Um, I, I have been lucky enough to be involved in businesses that are both fun and hard work. Um, but when I look at this, live events has always been part of my underlying passion and character. And to be able to actually bring it to uh, something that really excites me from a tech perspective and then bring it to a global scale uh, is, is great for me. Like there's so many, when you think of a business model, there's so many that don't have global potential. You know, maybe it's an amazing a uh, healthcare company based upon U.S. healthcare regulations could be an amazing company, but but you can't really apply that globally. Uh, an education company is going to be different because every country has a different education structure and government structure. But something like this can be applied everywhere, which excites me. Um, so, one to answer your question is, you know, which experience got me here? Uh, all of them. You know, the the idea of uh, understanding how events work during my agency work. Uh, the understanding how direct-to-consumer uh, sales work from my initial e-commerce company, um, understanding from my MarTech SaaS company how SaaS products work, the ability to, to you know, um, have a platform of, of sort that people pay on a subscription basement basis has helped. Uh, and then obviously all my data experience really uh, gets me excited uh, how data will inform every decision 
of, of uh, a global marketplace. Yeah, definitely. Sounds like, you know, it's similar to what Steve Jobs said. You can't connect the dots um, looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. And it seems like you drew a lot of your, your, your current uh, exec- execution ability uh, operations ability from previous businesses that you've been part of or help run. A lot of times, you know, people start companies, the first company, and they get discouraged because they, they learn the lessons, but then the business doesn't go as planned. And I had some friends that started companies and after the first one failed, they never went back. They might've just gave up altogether. And, you know, some, some people it's, it's uh, good on them and some of them uh, just gave up too soon or maybe but what what advice would you give to those business owners that are going through troubles right now and they haven't yet maybe their company is not profitable yet or they are coming on to some cash flow uh, issues maybe they have their market is um, not uh, what they thought it would turn out to be and what what kind of advice would you give to these small business owners owners going through a hard time I, i think part of it is just the grit to continue like um you know, and even if something fails and stops, uh, you know, take a breather and then get at it again. Um, you know, there, there's always that, all these multiple sayings that, you know, there's, there's always that storm before, you know, the sun comes out. Um, and, you know, to give one great example is, uh, um, multiple examples actually, is I've been part of an entrepreneur group um, called EO, which is a global group for over 12 years. And just having that peer community of individuals that have all, that, that, you know, actually get you. Um, everybody in the organization started their own company um, and just having that peer support of taking risk and handling setbacks and reaching your most important goals is super important. So, um, I, you know, even a great example is I, I took a three-year class at uh, MIT called an Entrepreneurial Master's Program and we had 70 uh, classmates from all over the world, all um, entrepreneurs. And it's incredible how, 70 different countries or maybe more like 50 countries um but 70 people all experienced a lot of the same issues and the ones that succeeded are the ones that just persevered through and didn't give up in the face of adversity and just kept moving um we have this uh one really special night uh, the first day of of the first day of class uh called like night of the living dead where where some of the classmates come in and share some of the you know the hardest stories of their life whether it's personal or professional and it really kind of gets everybody realizing that hey we're all the same people we're all we were all born with the same disease called entrepreneur and uh it really just got to keep fighting and it and eventually work out it's funny you call it a a disease (laughs) once you get it it's hard to shake it that's true it's like the entrepreneur bug awesome i i loved i loved your sharing i mean there's a lot of really deep insights in in all of this and uh i'm sure audience got a, a it's like a mba education right here <laughs> in, in marketplaces for those that want to learn more about you to follow fa- uh festival pass and uh follow your work where can they find you oh, so festivalpass.com is is the uh online app to be able to to go and see what we're doing there um my uh, email is editfestivalpass.com. Super easy. And you can find me on Facebook and LinkedIn. Awesome. I'll leave the links in the show notes. And that's just about wraps it up for today. I really appreciate you coming on to the show, Ed. But there you have it, Ed Vincent from Festival Pass. And uh, that brings our show to a conclusion. We'll see you all on the next episode. Thanks for coming on the show, Ed. I appreciate it, Gilbert. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. You can find more episodes every Tuesday. If you haven't done so, please subscribe for more updates as they come. Until next time.